Welcome to Emmaus Way. My name is Ben. I was really glad that Skylar sort of introduced or suggested that Richard Thompson song for this week because I feel like we could probably start every week at Emmaus Way with that. This, uh, at, we find ourselves, I think, as people transfixed under the evocative symbol of the Calvary Cross, captivated by the gospel as a community as we like to describe ourselves. And it's a powerful narrative, but it's as compelling as it is challenging to articulate specifically. But it has its claws in us, and it has its light in us in ways that shape us and drive us forward. So that's my, that's my read of Richard Thompson. I told Scott this week, I don't know half of what he's up to lyrically, but that is what was up to lyrically here tonight. <laughs> Welcome again. Uh, always early on in our gathering, we turn to our kids to lead us in a community song, and I think this is going to be the ultimate final performance of this current community song. Next week is Baptism Sunday, and we think we're going to get Mark Williams to help introduce us all. 
to a community song we're going to sing together as kids and adults. I think Bob Dylan's Forever Young. We're excited about that. But this week, the Holy Spirit, and please lead us, Joel, and kids. Kids, everybody. I think we're I think we're good at that. <laughs> Didn't take long at all. <laughs> so, announcement-wise, maybe we could just start with uh, with baptism. If Elizabeth or you want to just say a little bit about what we're up to next week. Sure. So next week we have um, some baby dedications, some infant baptisms, some baptisms, yeah. all going on here in May's way. And um, it'll be a great celebration. We, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be exactly as scrappy as Emmaus Way. Logistically, philosophically, we're gonna, it's, it's going to be great. We're going to hold it together you know, by sheer force of will, and it's going to be beautiful. Emily has a thing. Yeah, to like, complete the scrappiness, we're going to have a potluck afterwards. And this is the first time we're <laughs> so, bring some food. Stay afterwards, even if you don't bring food. We'll yeah, I forgot about how scrappy it was going to be. I mean, it just like <laughs> keeps getting scrappier. Um, I think there are also like Durham Can stuff. We have two missional announcements that I know of. One is Durham Can, and the other is like a religious coalition. So I'll, whoever wants to, you guys, other, who wants yeah. to talk about this. Metro Council is tomorrow for Durham Can at 6 o'clock, Duke Memorial. Um, I will be there, Tim Luton will be there, hopefully some of you um, will be defining, talking about kind of still affordable housing and also next steps and how Mayus Way can be engaged um, for the fall. So we'd love for you to be there. 6 to 8, Duke Memorial, Whitford Hall. So like kind of the back side Duke Memorial. And then on Wednesday, you can see me there again, Duke Memorial, Whitford Hall, 7.30. It's the International Day of Peace, um, and so there's going to be music um, provided by Durham Congregations in Action, um, and all proceeds of the door will go to Religious Coalition for Nonviolent Durham for their work of re-entry. Um, the re-entry work, and Emmaus Way just started another faith team, so it'd be a really wonderful event to come to, to support um, Religious Coalition and our community members who are engaged in this ministry. So that's at 7.30 Duke Memorial on Wednesday, Durham Can is at 6, Monday at Duke Memorial. Maybe we'll go hang out there Tuesday just for kicks and giggles, <laughs> I don't know what to think. Yeah, so, there we are. Um. Okay, excellent. Uh, I think running down, all of a sudden we have announcements, just like crazy. So also, I think next week is Baptism Week. The week after that, um, we're inviting a guest in. I could talk about this, but I know I know someone knows more about it than I do. Yeah. Do you want to? Sure. Keep going, Molly. <laughs> Keep going. Here we go. Um, on October 2nd, two, two Sundays from now, um, Dr. Diane Lipset 
she's a New Testament scholar. She's also my mother-in-law, Jane's mom. Um, we'll be coming to lead a discussion at 3 o'clock um, here, hopefully in the kitchen space that'll be done, um, 3 o'clock at Reality, 3 to 4.30, around how do folks wrestle with text and scriptures that we've heard all our lives and how they talk about the LGBTQ community um, with radical inclusion and what does that mean and how do we interpret text um, in our context. Um, she's brilliant at this. She goes all around the country leading this discussion, this dialogue. That'll be an hour and a half. And then she will be, if you can't make that from 3 to 4.30, um, she will be in the worship gathering. And that will be more like interview style, her sharing more of her narrative about how she went from being a Pentecostal in Canada to a New Testament scholar talking about radical inclusion. So, um, yeah, it'll be, she's a wonderful human. So. Awesome. Lots to look forward to there. And now brings us to our second installment of a recurring segment in the announcements. Does anybody know what it is? What time is it? It is 5.14, which means we actually started, Skylar started us right at 5.04. We are blowing through this thing. We're doing awesome. The whole point of this, other than just to be zany on my part, is just to acknowledge that we sort of drifted steadily further from our advertised start time of 5 o'clock. Advertise. I mean, we advertised that. Um, and so just, you know, to motivate staff to actually get us started on time and then motivate you guys to show up so we don't feel so horribly alone um, when we start <laughs> at 5. So we're sort of gradually working our way up to it. This week was 5.04. Next week, 5.03? Could be? Maybe? Anyway, we're working on that. If you'd help us out, we'd really appreciate it. Um, and yeah, with that, I'll sort of invite Skylar and Casey and Dale back up. And as they're doing that, I'll talk a little bit um, for our songs of prep. Come on, guys. I'm going to, yeah, please. It's because I, I want to note that one of the things I always enjoy about Skylar's music is something I like about songwriting in general, which is kind of like thoughtful use of counter argument. You can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, and so I thought, looking at this song tonight and like this, this, talking to Skylar about it, this idea of trying to craft our community as a third space where we're trying to relate to each other outside models of church or politics or economics that might be prescribed for us. Um, I think this idea that someone might say to us, what do you all know about dreams that some liar ain't told you? Um, might be a pretty good point, except insofar as our response might be something like, but what if we believe the lie? Um, and so I think that, that binary thing puts us down in a really good place for this week because I feel like, talking about this third space identity, we put ourselves just out of sync enough that it feels a little dangerous, that being lovers in a dangerous time, we find ourselves kicking at the darkness, trying to make daylight bleed out. So that's my version of how these fit together. Skylar might have her own. You guys might have your own. But thoughts from Ben. Lead us, please. <laughs>
songs. Preparation have given us a lot to think about as we go into our dialogue tonight. Um, but before we pass the piece, Tim and I realized in the announcement section we created, we had a faux pas. We forgot to recognize our next newest member, the newest member of Emmaus Way, not the next, but the newest of a long stream of the baby train. I think that's what we call it, Emmaus Way. The baby train of 2016-2017. But Soren Williams is with us tonight, and he's precious, so you should go see him. We are really glad that he's a part of our community. Um, yeah, so very, very glad. And I also want to say thank you for all of you who reached out last week with food or a text or an email um, phone call from where I was sick and wasn't with you. It just is a rare gift that a church um, is so loving and thoughtful and caring to all members of their community and let their pastors rest when they need to. So thank you for that. Um, I think that's all on the announcement-y, just feeling a lot of love for Emmaus Way right now. Um, so we're going to pass the peace in that love, um, be in relationship with one another, talk to one another. Because we start on time, we don't have to rush the peace, um, which is really nice. So if you don't never want to rush the peace, if you want a peaceful peace, come at 5 o'clock. Um, 
<laughs> so yeah, pass the peace, enjoy snacks, um, see how one another are doing. And we'll gather back in just a little bit. So if you remember last week, I said that there would be a quiz this week to start. So everybody get out a pencil, blank sheet of paper, not. So it's good to see everybody this week. And um, the, um, Molly, why don't I, um, why don't I get us started from last week? And then we'll we'll pick I wasn't up moments. Here, so that would be yeah, helpful. Yeah. Uh, so um, yeah, Molly and I were going to. If you remember, we were going to do the dialogue together last week. And so, I wrote a lot of it, but I don't know how it went over. So it would be helpful. I deleted everything you wrote. Just added stuff in. Made up stuff. You insulted several people I did. last week. I, I said did. Molly says, and then I inserted that. But uh, but it, it, we survived. So if you remember last week, we were. This was the last kind of of three weeks of these negations. And we know that's kind of crazy in talking about one's kind of aspirations and dreams and hopes. To talk about what you're not is not sexy. It's not exciting, all of those things. But I think it's incredibly important. I think in some ways, and we've said this uh, in lots of ways, knowing what we're not is absolutely critical because it gives us freedom to not only set boundaries, but to aspire to the things that we hope to be. So last week, the conversation was why we're not a moderate church. And we thought this would be an interesting thing just to remind us of that, is that we talked about in many ways the whole idea that our community is captivated. We say it almost every week by this notion of gospel and this ministry and way of life that emerges from Jesus's life and Jesus's ministry. And in some ways, I think the point that we wanted to land last week is the idea that the gospel is not moderate. Uh, the, the way of Jesus is not a moderate, it's not a safe thing. And obviously reaffirming that will get us to this idea of borderlands that we were talking about last week. But let me do throw that back to you is that um, it, it, just to rehearse some of the things that we said last week is how is the gospel Uh, to you and the way of Jesus to you, something that is not moderate. Um, We talked about this last week. You had great things to say. What makes it not moderate? Or you can insert the word safe as well. Well, I definitely have been offended so many times reading the text of the Gospels. There's insults, there's stuff about how you're going to be thrown into hell, all kinds of scary, traumatic stuff. Yeah, I mean, Jesus does not hold back, does he? And I mean, you read Matthew's gospel and somebody is around the gnashing of teeth pretty quickly, right? Yeah, and tonight's text is a is a, a text that either at face value or at every value you would look at is an offensive text. Yeah. I think about, I wasn't here last week, but I think about, you know, when Jesus says to love your enemies and bless those who curse you, those are not very safe texts for me to read. Yeah, I mean, what if, like, in the training, like, of high school, or no, even better, middle school kids, what if you, like, had them read the Sermon on the Mount and then go and try to live the Sermon on the Mount all day long as middle schoolers? How do you think it would go? It would fail miserably. 
I mean, it would, it would, it's, it's not the plan. It's not the way that you manage that kind of environment, without a doubt. Other, other thoughts? You know, you talked about borderlands, or I'm not sure if that was quite the word, but the gospel seems to take you to the edge um, of whatever context you're in. And Jesus continually went to the edges of things, which is just not a moderate location to be. It's not safe. What's an edge for you, SK? I love SK so much that I ask that question publicly without even thinking about it. But is there an edge that comes to mind? No. Okay. I think about it. No, that was not fair. It's very, very true. Yeah, so edges. Jesus is always in the margins, the edges pushing us to the places we often least want to go like pushing us to love our enemies when it's a lot easier to ignore them or hold revenge and grudge. So, and I think SK brought up a good point too. What borderlands, I think that that's the right phrase or what we were talking about last week. So Tim, do you want to kind of re-clarify for us borderlands and then I'm going to share a bit about why I find borderlands sacred, but also really terrifying too, but why they're important. So yeah. Sure. And I think one of the things that, Ben, you made this point, I think without confusing this, when we talk about borderlands, one of the things I would encourage you to do is not necessarily think about boundaries, right? Because we've used that term boundary a lot in Emmaus Way over 10 years. And and if you remember where that has come up, those of you who've been around a long time, is the idea that many, many Faith communities are obsessed with boundaries, right? They're they're obsessed with who gets in and who gets out, right? And so we used to talk about ourselves as being a center-set community, meaning uh, we were obsessed with what holds us together, not some line that somebody would paint in the sand intellectually, theologically, socially, racially, whatever, and say this is what makes uh, people good or bad. I mean, just watching the campaign this year, it's, it's nothing but a borderland experience, right? I mean, it's literally people constantly describing someone who's in, someone who's out. I'm a bigot. No, you're a bigot. What's a bigot? But the assumption is that someone is to be excluded. So, um, so when we talk about borderlands, if you could divorce yourself of that mindset of boundaries, um, and what we mean by this is the idea that in when you the reference to borderlands and where this has emerged in terms of it, it's a term that has been held very powerfully both in art and in academia and in both of those settings it talks about a space of encounter uh, the idea I made the joke last week that when you fly an airplane. Uh, Somewhere you don't look down and you don't see a line painted uh, somewhere that says you are you have just left Egypt and now you're over the Sudan. I mean you don't know that. They're, the borders of our world are much more fluid than one would imagine when you're looking at a at a map. 
And this is the case not just for geography, but for relationships and differences. And so by borderlands, what we mean is that that awkward space of encounter, that beautiful space, that sacred space, even that mysterious space of encounter when we engage difference, when we engage someone that is different than us, when we hear uh, a story that is not our narrative, I I would suggest that the way that we do our dialogue every week is a borderland experience because I don't know what you're going to say. And in many ways, what Molly and I are imagining is when we get illustrative, that's why I asked SK that question, it's like we're not not creating boundaries, borders, all of those things with our own experiences. We're encountering you and hearing your experiences. We have gender differences. We have national differences. We have ideological differences in this room. So that's what we mean by borderlands is that that urge to get near and in proximity to something that is different from us. And truly, one of the things that one could say is probably the best critique that one could have in in the world that we live in is no matter what you are ideologically or whatever, um, we live in echo chambers, right? We typically live listening to people who agree with us politically. Like even as a joke, you could get on a Duke sports message board today or a Carolina sports message board today and you would find that the other guys are Satan's spawn, uh, imagining your demise. I mean, this is kind of what radio, you know, sports talk is, but this is what we do with politics, with ideology, with faith, is we find people that already agree with us and we listen uh, decisively to those people. So when we're talking about borderlands as a community and being a borderland community, we're talking about stepping out of spaces that might be deeply comfortable for us and encountering differences that transform who we are and, and, and impact the people that we're engaging. So Molly said this very accurately. That sounds scary. That does, I mean, every rule of forming a church community is to not do that. Uh, rule one is to define who you are, uh, make that very clear, and then try to find more people like you so that they'll occupy that space. But Molly, for you, here you are in a, a pastoral role in a community that's saying we aspire to be in borderland spaces. What's beautiful about that and what's horrific about that for you? Yeah, I think that what's both, um, I think what's beautiful is for me, it gets at the heart of the gospel, right? Like we are called into and to be borderland people, willing to go and encounter those that we would much rather ignore or not see as human, as like Imago Dei, God in me and the God in you. Um, so I think it's really beautiful and profound in that way because that's how, yeah, I really understand the heart of the gospel. But I think it's scary and where it makes me uncomfortable is as I was doing reading about borderlands, this notion of collision kept on coming up. It's like borderland spaces or the places where ideas, actual bodies, constructed throughout culture, like geography, theological understanding, they collide. And I don't know about you, but I don't really generally like collision. It's a little, I mean, I was in a car wreck once and it was horrible, right? Like we, it's collision isn't something that we often gravitate toward. Um, and so the thought of being a community that seeks those out at first seems really scary. But the more I thought about it, I thought how beautiful, though, that we are a church, whereas boundaries often, I think we create boundaries to keep people in and out and to keep ourselves safe, right? And sometimes maybe we'll, like, expand our boundaries or put them 
as we become more intellectually or theologically or politically, whatever, however you want to say it, advanced or smarter, pat ourselves on the back more, we might push our boundaries out a bit. We never really are willing to go into the borderland to collide with another. And um, I'm just really excited about what happens in that collision and when we are willing to break down the boundary um, and to go into that space. Because I think that we're entering spaces where boundaries no longer define us, but rather we're entering a space that the gospel invites us into to say, trust this collision, trust this interaction, trust being known, seeing the other, and wait and see what happens, right? Like, be engaged and be willing to be, I think, astonished and surprised at what can come. And so I think that that, the borderland intersection, is both, yeah, exciting and terrifying in, in that, because we don't have control over the collision, right? And... Um, I don't know about you, but I often like control, so that's why I often create boundaries. Um, but yeah, I think that's for me what it is about. And then you know, there's stories when you get into these bordered spaces. There are stories that you encounter that you don't want to hear. Stories that are absolutely essential to uh, to knowing not only where you've come from, but where you're going. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, I joke all the time uh, about my, my worst sermon series around the triangle, uh, the, the we're not the good guys, or, or are we really the good guys? And it, it was, you know, this idea of saying that there's this, this narrative that Christian communities have about themselves often is ones who are always on the side of justice, uh, on the side of goodness, on the side of rightness is not the narrative that's told about Christian communities outside of those communities. You know, I, I, as a person who grew up in the civil rights era, that's one of the first first lessons that I learned as a ten or twelve year old is the church could be so unbelievably wrong. Uh, and to me, that's been pretty pretty shaping and powerful <laughs> to kind of open the door to what would have been a deeply forbidden story in my own, uh, my own childhood and my own raising in the church. But again, I think there's, there, there, is that, that, there are these stories that are, are, are deeply frightening. And we have stories in our own corpus that, that are, are ones that are hard to put our arms around. And our very safe, comfortable notions of ourselves perhaps don't create any space for that. I mean, tonight we have a story that... You could imagine re- imagine reading this story uh, without any sense of theological inertia or biblical respect, and you just saw this story. It- it's a challenging story. Uh, Molly, why don't you kind of take us into that? Yeah, yeah. So we're going to read, um, share dialogue around the Syrophoenician woman tonight. Um, we did this text back in the fall, um, but we thought it was a really beautiful text of... Um, borderlands colliding there being multiple collisions so would someone read it and as we're reading this text so jesus kind of just set it up had sort of left galilee and was coming into the gentile region to rest right so he's trying to get away from the crowds and just have peace and quiet um and this encounter happens so would someone read it and as we're reading it be thinking about what borderlands what borders you see here. Anybody willing to read the text? From there he set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. 
Yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For saying that you may go, the demon has left your daughter. So she went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. Thanks. So what are some borders, some borderlands that you see colliding in this text? Gentile Jew. Yeah, Gentile Jew. What else? Jesus is kind of an introvert here, and someone's invading his space. Yeah, an introvert. That's really interesting. An introvert and somebody's invading space. Yeah. He's not exactly warm and happy to see this woman. Mm-hmm. Other borders. The demons taking up space in our, in our you know, everyday world. Yeah. The demons. Yeah, the, the, the spiritual map. Mm-hmm. is not a pure or clear map in these type of stories, be it demonic or illness or otherwise. The world isn't going the way it, the way should. it should go. Yeah. I think she was kind of arguing with him or you know, asserting herself to make him see how desperately needy she was. Yeah. That's a little bit of a She's a very assertive female. She's not, yeah. Which in that day, and I mean, even today, right, when women are assertive, it's like, oh, <laughs> people get thrown off. But especially, yeah, kind of the assertiveness of the woman. Remember when we did um, Ruth's story a year ago, what, what did we learn about Canaanite women? They're, I mean, Canaanite women live for sex at all times. They're either having sex or thinking about sex, right? I mean, that's, that's the narrative that's told in Israel about women, uh, particularly in the cultures that are around them. And so there's this notion of maybe purity of the Messiah... And this woman who has barged into his space. And in some ways, there's hard to tell this narrative without it being a sexual narrative. Because, uh, and, and last week we looked at another one like that. But again, Canaanite women are constructed as, as um, sexually permissive, of, of lacking morals. And, you know, I mean, you get in the wiles of a Canaanite woman and who knows where it'll take you. And I thought one, too, that's interesting about this text, which isn't... But the socioeconomic realities of the borderline and that tension, right? So this notion that it's often Jewish peasants who are creating goods for these Gentiles. And so I was reading a really interesting commentary on economics um, and kind of gospel text. But this is brought up as um, that that might have been an underlayer, right? Because the economics of our society are always at play. Um, and so for them, yeah, Andrew? So, you know, and I spoken about compassion before, I said the same thing, but for me, whenever we read this, I see an encounter between the Jewish Jesus and the Gentile church. 
So when I was a kid, the Gentile church read it as saying, oh, but you know, Jesus is coming first to Israel and then to the Gentiles, and so he's ready to push her aside, which I think is wrong. Um, And then the other version is, well, how is he so nasty to her? Because I think in Jewish culture, he knows he's being watched. Even if he's north of the border, he knows where we'll get back to the palace. They're waiting to take him down. And so, I think he sets it up, like in volleyball. Oh, he has this easy punch, and then she smacks it down. And a Gentile woman gets the best of him in the rhetorical battle. And I think he set it up exactly that way, precisely to subvert the order of the day. To subvert, because look at here, he's got all this privilege, and I think he sets it up. But she has to be a servant to take it. And I think he sets it up. But the ways in which it's read always, to me, always remind that Jesus always sounds so Gentile. He can't be kind of tongue-in-cheek or joking and have a rough sense of humor. Because in the Gentile church, we never do that, right? You can't tell people to their face normally what's wrong with them, unless you're casting them out. You can't tell close people. But in, in Jewish culture, you can do it all the time. Right? Like that, that shows they're an insider. Yeah. That's a good, uh, that's a powerful reading. It's one that I affirm, I want to raise another one just for fun on this too, is how many times, I do this all the time. In fact, I, I, I think I had like five of these two weeks ago. But when you get in bordered spaces, how many of you have ever said the wrong thing? Oh, yeah. Right? Anybody ever done that? Or is it just me? And when you get in spaces that are, say, not heteronormative or not with a single racial narrative or not with a, uh, a single political or economic narrative, do you ever notice that sometimes there isn't a right thing to say? There isn't a safe thing to say. So I do think, I mean, there's something beautiful about this woman who... who is rhetorically understanding something that Jesus is setting up. But it's also kind of interesting to think about Jesus by constantly putting himself in spaces like this, said horrific things like, who is my mother and brothers, but except for the, you know, I mean, there's there's something rude about what he says. And the easiest thing is to stay away from Canaanite women because you may not say rude things. Uh, Anyway. Yeah, but Jesus chooses to go into those collisions, right? So this notion of choosing to willingly go into these borderland spaces and maybe, Mm -hmm. yeah, like doesn't always say the nicest. I mean, this text, I just, yeah, I often struggle with it. because of what Jesus said. The gospel's hard often because of what, well, like, what is that? Jesus said. I mean, again, so, so as a white male, I read this text and, and uh-huh. I don't have that sense of being excluded from mm-hmm. theological dialogue. And, you know, as a white male, you say, hey, I want to be a pastor. People are like, thank God, we got the right people. The recruiting mechanism's going well. Um, the, but, you know, how do you, yeah. like, this is this not text, a pleasant text it's for, not, for women. How but do you it was read? really interesting, though, reading this text and thinking about borderland spaces and kind of thinking about it for the dialogue tonight of, um, it is hard. And I do think, like, Excuse, I mean, I kind of think Jesus is an ass in this text, if I can say that. I feel a little heretical. I hope my mom doesn't listen to this podcast. But, I mean, right? Like, he's just really blunt. I mean, like, what he says is harsh. And it's not kind. And it's not loving. But I think it's 
really real given the tensions and the layers and the, all the borders that are colliding. Yet I think this text in the broader gospel narrative as I'm thinking about it and borders is that Jesus continues to go and to be in relationship with and to encounter the other. And I think in some ways I see the humanity of Jesus here in this space and that kind of offers me, I read it more with like there's a grace in some ways for us too that even when we go into these borderland spaces um, we may not always say the right thing or do the right thing um, but yet this is actually the first time I read the text this weekend um, where it, I still struggle with it but it had more I had hope I guess mm-hmm. in it because of the humanness of it yeah Jim sorry I'm also really bad at turning on the stool so. um so you've used some words tonight that, that talk about how we go to the borderlands or how Jesus goes to borderlands. You've talked about engagement. I think you've used the word grace. And I think that's all the difference of how we go to borderlands because there are instances of, of exploring borderlands just to make trouble. Oh, yeah, for sure. And um, just to kind of stir things up because that's fun. To, to make chaos or see how people mm-hmm. react to it. Um, comedians. Or to map it for somebody else's exploitation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, comedians go there, go, are, are always exploring borders because they want to find material that hasn't been explored before. And so they're going to go to places that are uncomfortable and see what kind of humor they can create. And I think the, the difference about seeking the gospel in those borderlands is the attitude that one goes with. Yeah, I Okay, so there's, there's an attitude of, I'm going to find something there. I'm going to find something good there. And I'm going, to, I'm going to find little bits that I can incorporate into my life. And I think one thing which we're kind of talking about, right, is borderland open table is borderland space. And so sort of our, at Emmaus Way, and, um, we are shaped by the open table and gospel. Therefore, every time we are, find ourselves in a borderland space, we are transformed, right? We can't not separate. Well, we, we can be with the right attitude. But what? if we go with the wrong attitude to a borderland space, yeah. we could be just... For sure, for sure, for sure. But I think the hope is that through practice, right, borderland practices that happen within this community, that our transformation and who we are ever becoming, we wouldn't go with a wrong attitude. I mean, or if we do, we might na- we might see it within ourselves and then after... <laughs> really be deconstructing that encounter and how, what parts of, like, how we, how we should change or tweak or what could have gone better, right? Mm-hmm. We at least be more reflective in that, I think. You know, a thought, yeah, oh, sorry, okay. Somebody this way. Somebody behind me. Oh, Brent. Christine's also not happy for So, you know, um, as one of you as for 10 years now, I've been thinking about borderlands. I'm, my mind is racing here, trying to think of what to contribute. Um, but one thing that keeps coming back to mind is, is um, this phrase that Mexican Americans have about the U.S. border that we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering in our reading of this, we're thinking of the Canaanite woman as the marginalized here for, for valid reasons. But Think about like Rikimi Ogusano, this great theologian of the borderlands, and 
his handwriting about Galilee as analogous to the Mexican-American ruin. <clears throat> the Jews are, are the, the Mexicans in that situation, right? They have been colonized for hundreds of years by this Syro-Phoenician power, right? Tyre is the, is the capital of that. Tyre is Washington, D.C. You know? <laughs> so, so he's going to the seat of power of, of a whole culture that for almost a, a thousand years has, um, you know, raided and taken captive and colonized um, the Jewish people. So, I don't know, the, the more I'm thinking about it, it's like, yeah, he's a jerk, but, but he's got... He has reason to be. He does, yes, for sure. For sure, for sure. It's interesting. Very much so. Pub group, we read a story. It's funny how the how like uh, we raised the point last week. Uh, I said it for Nydia how the border crosses our our spaces. We read. Remember a story we read on Canaanites and cowboys. The the how how the story is told differently from a Canaanite perspective when you have an invading uh, Israelite army, and now two thousand years later you have uh, a, a different position. So it, it's interesting that that's a, a classic example of kind of a, a borderland personality who can call themselves the dominant force in the world ever given the the longer historical narrative christine you were going to say something well um this has been yeah this is really really great um and i'm enjoying this conversation i think um i think some of the ways that i'm interacting with this text uh has to do with it's what what jesus says is so shocking here that the shockingness of it feels like it, I, I'm thinking about the ways that I sort of try to make my way around that. And so I just wanted to say like two or three things about that. Um, one, I think that, you know, I, I, was, I was struck by, Tim, what you were saying when you were like, you know, have you ever gone into a borderland space and said the wrong thing? Um, and, you know, I mean, I talk a lot, so I often say the wrong thing all the time. Um, and I think that part of the power of this text is that Jesus goes to where he's not supposed to go. He goes to he goes to Tyre, like all these like Syrophoenicians, and then all there are all these sort of not you're not this is not what's supposed to happen. You're not supposed to have a woman come and beg for her daughter, not her son, right? And so and then and then like. You, you can easily imagine that being the end, right? But instead, it just, this goes 100%. Like, Jesus says something that we're like, holy smokes, that sounds really bad. Because the sound of it is really bad. And the words inside of it are bad words. And so it really forces the confrontation in ways that I think I would like the confrontation to not be forced. And I think when it comes to for some people, really love collisions. We're going to put those people aside right now. But for most of us, I think we really don't want that to happen, right? And so instead, this is what happens. So, so how how do I how do I think it through this text? Well, one thing is I think about what I see in the way he interacts with people in general, and I have a hard time thinking he's trying to be mean to her. But I do think what this is doing is just exposing and putting out there the things that people think in a way that is totally unavoidable and not nice. Mm -hmm. um, and he forces it. 
And we could have many interpretations of how and why he forces it. I mean, my personal opinion is that he's a punk, but I don't think he's, I don't think he's like a bad person. Since I don't think he's a bad person. <laughs> um, but but he, he doesn't, he doesn't leave it safe. And he doesn't leave it sort of polite and, you know, awkward. But he puts out there what people say. You know, and there's, Christine, there's a couple of things here that I think are, are really powerful about this text. And, and this is actually grabbing something that you said, Andrew, and something Christina is saying and something that Jim said, is that, um, it, because how is race typically played in our culture? It's often played as an invisibility, right? It, that's, that's really the most dominant racial strategy in our culture, is, per, is to present, pretend that it doesn't exist. So Jesus says something that makes it very clear that this is a racial, sexual, gendered, national encounter. And, and it's interesting, Andrew, however we get there, Jesus is willing to lose at this encounter. Jesus is willing to, to be one-upped by the person who should never one-up a rabbi. And that's powerful in itself. But then there's a couple layers to this. It's not just the text as it happened, right? This was written later for people who would read it later. And I wonder who gets shoved by this text later. And I think it's the church that gets shoved. This narrative that in some way we are God's promised people. Everyone who screwed up up to this point is not worthy of consideration. This whole kind of theology that God in Israel was a bit of a farce or something that happened but didn't go well. But we are truly the people. And of course for us as Americans it gets translated as and there are really good Christians and those are, are us. Uh, but to some way, and I've heard this story read powerfully outside of that narrative, to in some way be a reminder to the church that there's this incredible dialogue going on between God and Israel. And we're being invited into that conversation rather than the sole purpose of that conversation. So there's a couple things that happens on this that, are, that I think are dynamic. The, the, what Jesus sets up, what he says, what Christine says, what he makes obvious that would be so polite to ignore, and, and how we read this later. Now, Molly, let me turn this for you to kind of take us to the table on this to some degree. Because for us, this is not an abstraction. As a community, we're aspiring to be in these crazy spaces, these borderland spaces where you can say the wrong thing, you can encounter a mystery that you may not want to. And we envision the table as as, as a precise practice Tell us more about it. Put the table yeah, under yeah. that theme. So, um, in Divinity School, one of my favorite professors, um, worship and arts, she always said the hardest part about the gospel is we read these things and we know where we're supposed to go and where we're supposed to be. But we don't create the practices and the praxis that create space for ourselves to transform in community so that we can go out and leave the church and be about the gospel. <laughs> Or the borderlands. And so for me, I think the open table is borderland because we collide quite literally sometimes. It's a loud, like, right? We like physically have a loud, boisterous collision of a borderland of people, of narratives, where we come from, where we're going. And I think that it's at the table, right? Like, where we fully see one another, 
where hopefully we would fully see one another. And where we fully see and better understand God, and God is in that moment. And so I think, right, like, the table as borderland is us weekly committing to come together around ordinary food and drink, right? It's not a borderland space we would normally think of, but bringing our whole selves and our whole narrative to that space week after week has to transform us. Because if it doesn't, why the heck do we come to the table week after week after week? And I think that that transformation of being willing for whatever our edges, whatever our borderlands are within our lives, to bring that to the open table space and for others to bring theirs matters. Because if we can't do it here, how are we going to do it out there, right? Like, I keep on thinking about Christine um, and how a few weeks ago, and just sort of saying of how, right, like, often the church thinks that we have what the world needs, but maybe the world, right, has what the church needs. And I've just been thinking a lot about the world and how the church, I think we don't, I need spaces like the table where I can come and encounter and collide because I often put up veils, right, or boundaries. And just how some of my friends who are not a part of the church do a much better job of entering in borderland spaces than me. And I'm a pastor, right? Like, I should, I should really be better at that. Um, and so I think, right, claiming this borderland space, claiming this open st- table as a willingness to encounter and befriend and know one another intimately or as intimately as we are willing to engage allows us to then go and be about that space and those collisions in the world. And for me, I think most fully live out the gospel narrative. And I think, I don't know about you, but it's by coming to the table and by knowing that we are not alone and by knowing that sometimes when we come to the table, we will recognize and find parts of ourselves that we have tried to hide or don't want to be known or where we have to serve bread to someone who completely disagrees with almost everything that we hold so dear. Yet knowing that you are breaking bread and pouring wine for someone that is just as much a beloved child of God as you allows us to go and do the same in the world. And I think it allows us to not run from the Syrophoenician women. I think that it allows us to realize, right, that narratives are layered and messy and complex. And Brandon is totally right, right? Like that Jesus had every right to respond the way that he did because his people, (laughs) the border just kept on encroaching and encroaching and encroaching. Um, But it's just creating that space, I think, for us to be awakened and a conscious movement into this creative terrain of borderland and third space. And so I think for me, and I think for Emmaus Way, why the open table is so important is it's the space every week where we are intentionally coming for our edges to butt up against one another. Because I think if we don't have that here, at least for me, if I were not to have that, it would be a lot harder for me to want to encounter the other out in the world. Um, and I think, yeah, 
I think the open table, I love um, Sarah Miles. She's an Episcopalian who was an atheist, a journalist. She wrote a beautiful book called Take This Bread. If you haven't read it, you should read it. Um, so she's an atheist, a journalist, and comes into an Episcopal church on Ash, Ash Wednesday or somewhere around Easter, like in that time, for Eucharist, and just weeps and is overcome by this radical open table in San Francisco. And she says that it is the open table, that this space is the open table, and our transformation around this borderland that can crack religious and political convictions open, can advocate for the least qualified, least official, least likely. It upsets the established order and makes a joy a joke of certainty. The open table proclaims against reason that the hungry will be fed, that those cast down will be raised up, and that all things, including our own failures, are being made new. It offers food without exception to the worthy and unworthy, the screwed up and pious, and then commands everyone to do the same. It doesn't promise to solve or erase suffering, but to transform it, pledging that by loving one another, even through pain, we will find more life. And it insists that by opening ourselves to the strangers, the despised, or frightening, or unintelligible other, we will see more and more of the holy, since without exception, all people are one and holy, beloved by God. <coughs> and I think that that's why the open borderland space of the open table is important for that transformation, for us to start fully not only hearing those words, but being transformed by them and realizing them and having it shake up our lives and our world so that we can boldly go outside into the world where we are called to be and start colliding with principalities and powers and people and situations where maybe we would prefer not be. But that is where we are called. Um, so yeah, I think that that, for me, and I think for Tim, just kind of amazed way, right? Like how powerful that this community roots itself in a space that transforms and shakes up and collides every Sunday. And it's just... What are we going to do with that? Yeah, thanks. You know, I was thinking back to you, Brandon, the idea of moving borders and that great history that Israel was in. I was thinking about that is that Israel was both a perpetrator and a victim in, in that long history. They, they had both sides of that. And I think that's who we are as we come to the table. We see ourselves as, as very clearly perpetrators, perpetrators. Uh, collectively, personally, but we also see ourselves as beloved perpetrators and beloved victims in that. And that is complicated space. It's powerful space, and it's, 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 it's beautiful space, I think. And we look forward to kind of continuing this conversation. Um, in the next two weeks, we're going to live in two very distinct border spaces, I would, or boundary spaces as well, and that is... Uh, Next week, we're going to be not entirely, but almost entirely focused on children. Uh, if you read the New Testament, that was another group that was largely unwelcome to prophets and priests and rabbis and, and uh, people that should be 
you know, shipped away when they make noise. Uh, and we're going to celebrate uh, children in our community, despite the fact that we all have different narratives about our own, our, our own childhood, our, our own life in this world, and our own posture toward families and children. So that's going to be. And then, and then think about what Diane's going to talk about. If there ever was a, a scary, frightening, mysterious borderland space in our culture, it's sexuality. And, and we're reading ancient documents as scripts to make our way sexually in the world that we live in. And that's an incredibly difficult jump. And it's one that's so awkward to talk about at times that we almost never talk about, about these texts. And so uh, the next couple of weeks are very intentionally crafted to keep us in that space. But Scholar, we look forward to leading us now in uh, confession and in absolution, and then we'll uh, join each other at the table.
first heard this song on the Emmaus Way, somehow I found an Emmaus Way Spotify playlist. Um, I think it must be Josh Busman's or something. Um, it's, it's a bit dated. Some of the songs are a bit dated, I will admit. But this song came up and I gravitated toward it. Um, I think in part because I kind of understood it. And some of the beloved songs of Emmaus Way, right? I don't always, which I love, right? But I have to like read it and think and like think about all the layers. And I try to go into like my bin and mark and like Josh Bussman, right? Headspace, like <laughs> trying to figure it out, um, <laughs> you know, because yeah. And I think I'm getting better. But initially I was just like, wow, this song is just pretty straightforward. I like it. And then I kind of got mad at myself that I wasn't like theologically deep or like thinking through the deeper layers or something, right? That I couldn't Josh Busman, right? Like a song. Um, 
But I think what's so beautiful and profound for me about this song, and why I think it's a perfect absolution on a night where we're talking about borderlands and collisions and hard encounters and this notion of open table as borderland practice that transforms. I don't know about you, but I often can get very overwhelmed by it and the weight of it whenever you match, put like all of that with the weight of the world and what's going on in our own lives, out like in Durham, in our country, around the world internationally. And this song, though easy to understand, forces me and forces us to not do a lot, but to intentionally be willing to pick up our spade and break ground every day, whatever that ground looks like. It doesn't say we have to solve all the problems. It doesn't say we have to go into a borderland space every day or willingly try to do X, Y, and Z. But it's a commitment, a practice that transforms of picking up our spade and breaking ground every day. And that's really, really um, a comfort to me that we don't have to have it all figured out, but we have to be willing to pick up a spade and break ground. And I think for us, picking up that spade at the open table is just coming to the table and being willing to break bread and share wine and look into other people's eyes and look, and for you to see them as a child of God and for they to see you as a child of God and for that interaction to matter. And through the breaking of the ground, day after day, week after week, as we gather around this table, I know that we ourselves are being transformed and taking that transformation out into the world and the pockets of where we engage in the world with others, those pockets are being transformed. And though it may not seem like a lot, and though it may seem overly simplistic, like this song, it's something that I can hold on to. Um, And I think it's something that matters. So I hope that you will come with me as we break ground, as we break bread, pour wine and juice for one another, and come to a very open table where all are welcomed, all collisions are invited. Let us break bread and be the love of God for one another. So let us come.